Welcome to Redbird Buzz. I'm John Twerk from University Marketing and Communications. Our guest today is Dr. David Edmonds, a well-known and trusted expert in Native American ethnohistory. Originally from Blue Mound, about 15 miles southwest of Decatur, Dr. Edmonds earned a master's degree from Illinois State University in 1966 while teaching at Bloomington High School. He later earned an honorary degree from Illinois State in 2002 and a Distinguished Alumni Award in 2012. Throughout the past 50 years, Dr. Edmonds has held professorships at the University of Wyoming, TCU, California Berkeley, UCLA, Indiana University, and the University of Texas at Dallas. And he's published 10 scholarly books and more than 100 academic articles. He's also contributed to Native American docuseries projects for PBS and the History Channel. Dr. Edmonds is featured in this fall's issue of State Magazine, and he joins me now to discuss his role as a Native American scholar and advocate. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. David Edmonds to Redbird Buzz. What's the word, Redbird? You're an authority on Native American history and culture with more than 50 years of teaching and scholarship experience. You're a part of that history. Your family is of Cherokee descent. How and why have you devoted your life to Native American history? Well, I'm one of the very few people, John, that, that have been able to spend my life doing and being paid for it as a, in a profession on something I would probably have done as an avocation or a hobby uh, otherwise, um, as you probably know, um, uh, I started out as a, um, uh, a chemistry major, a, a pre-law actually was thought about going into something called patent law, which you deal with medicines. But uh, as an undergraduate uh, at Millican and as a graduate student at uh, ISU, uh, whenever I had an opportunity to write a paper in a, on a cultural subject or on a uh, uh, in a history subject, uh, I, I usually chose a Native American topic because uh, of my family's uh, background and because I've always been very, very interested in it. And so since that time, I, I um, uh, have been able then to channel that into a profession. I'll be very honest with you. When I first started my master's uh, degree at ISU, I, I was teaching at Bloomington High School, and I thought, Gee, those uh, those college professors are only in um, in class. Uh, I don't know, twelve or fifteen hours a week at that time, uh, and I'm teaching all this time. Maybe I should try to do that. I'll have more time to play golf. Well, ironically, I got I got into it and really began to to study Native American history. I haven't played around the golf since. I literally <laughs> since I started graduate school, and I don't I don't miss it. And uh, but I've been able to to spend my life doing something that I. I really, really enjoy, and uh, I'm still going. I'm, I'm teaching a, a workshop right uh, this this semester on an, uh, traveling off and on to uh, Nebraska to present material to uh, public school teachers uh, so that they can include more about Native American um, uh, uh, history or culture to students in their class. So, um, yeah, I, I have no regrets, um, and uh, it's been – Sometimes it's been up and down, and sometimes we've had some some uh, uh, some bad times. But at the same time, 
um, I uh, I have enjoyed it, and uh, I hope to continue to do it uh, as long as I can. Now, you're involved in parallel efforts to preserve history and also to secure a, a better future for Native Americans. So let's start talking about Native American history. Um, while you're working toward your undergraduate degree here at Illinois State, you wrote a thesis on the history of the Kickapoos, which were an important tribe in Illinois history. Can you talk about some of the rich Native American history that surrounds us right here in central Illinois? Well, yes, I'd be glad to, because uh, that's that's one of the reasons I, I became interested in uh, Native American history in the first place. Um, I, my goodness, McLean County, um, although some people don't realize it, has an extremely rich uh, background in Native American in Native American history. Out by Downs, in between Downs and, and Leroy, there was a, uh, speaking of the Kickapoos, the uh, there was a thing called the Grand Kickapoo Village of the Prairie, and it sits sort of on a, a glacial moraine there um, overlooking the, the prairie, about halfway between, uh, I suppose, Bloomington and, and Champaign-Urbana. But it was the largest Kickapoo village in the, in, during the War of 1812, and it was a village from which uh, Native Americans who were raiding the American frontier, who were, who were uh, against uh, the United States in the War of 1812, uh, organized raids, uh, swept south across the prairies, uh, down towards St. Louis, and there was a major road that stretched from Vincennes, Indiana, into uh, the Edwardsville, St. Louis region, and they uh, just created havoc along that road. And they also then crossed the Mississippi, ironically, and um, uh, struck it at uh, areas in, in Missouri. And uh, in response, the um, the government tried to retaliate. In fact, it had tried to to attack that village uh, previously, but it never was very successful. It was pretty isolated, and uh, it became a focal point sort of Native American resistance. One can go out there today, and I think there is a plaque commemorating it. But maybe even more important in an era in an era of about a hundred years almost previous to that time, there was a <laughs> fantastic uh, military uh, encounter that took place between the Fox Indians or the Meskwaki Indians and almost the same location uh, near, near modern Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. uh, the Fox Indians were living in northern, in, in northern Illinois and Wisconsin. They had been at war with the French and they felt they were becoming, um, uh, they were losing and so they decided they would migrate across northern central Illinois, cut across through the Wabash Valley, and, and joined the Iroquois, which were a pro-British uh, confederacy in uh, New York. And so in 1730, they, the summer, they crossed the Illinois River on foot, uh, a large number of them, and stopped to hunt bison on the prairies uh, somewhere north of um, uh, McLean County, probably on the northern part of McLean County, and there were encountered by French allied Indians who spread the word, and the French sent troops from Detroit, from Vincennes, uh, from an, an area which would be now about where Lafayette, Indiana, occurred, allied with French allied Indians, and they surrounded them. Hmm. And in the on the prairie then, the uh, Meskwakis uh, uh, found a, a, a grove of trees, with a, with a stream going by it, and they fortified it, and they fought for a month, uh, and the French and their allies finally over, um, 
ran them out of, of ammunition, etc. And they tried to make a break for it, and they were run down then on the prairie, and many of them were slaughtered. But this was a a major kind of a military confrontation with French troops uh, uh, fighting here against Native people in the in uh, Illinois, and it's after that that the the the, the uh, rest of the foxes, the ones that survived, many of them joined with the Sock and Fox tribe, which was a tribe then becomes a combined tribe up in northern Illinois, and uh, it's part of they're part of the the Black Hawk War tradition, etc. But these are just two events. There were uh, villages along the Mackinac. There were villages uh, south of McLean County, certainly along. Uh, the the Sangamon River, the Salt Fork of the Sangamon River, and considerably number of uh, Native American Potawatomi Kickapoo uh, villages over along the and uh, around Lake Peoria on the Illinois River. So this area that in which you're living is a was a an area that had a lot of of game. It was an area where there were still bison in the 1730s. You could hunt buffalo in the region, hmm. and it attracted quite a few Indian people. Incredible history. Um, and and as, an, as a historian yourself, uh, part of your work involves dispelling misguided notions about Native Americans. Can you talk about uh, some facts that need to be set straight, frankly? Well, I think that the, the something to, to, to consider is, the, uh, is that tribal people, Native American people, sometimes we use the term indigenous. I personally prefer Native American, um, that, that we're all, um, and, and I, am, I, do not, I am not an enrolled member of, of any tribe, but I sometimes identify with people, um, is that uh, Native people are no longer vanishing Americans. Uh, the issue is that, that uh, oh my goodness, all Indian people, all Native American people live on, on reservation communities uh, somewhere in the West or Southwest and uh, that the number is declining. Nothing could be, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the native population of the United States in the, in the uh, 2000, uh, 2020 census, self-identified anyway, uh, was almost 9.7 million people. Now, not all of those people are um, very, you know, less than half of them are what we would call full bloods, but they were people of, of Indian ancestry. Uh, today, there are 575 approximately recognized tribal groups, recognized by the federal government, and that means that they're, they are uh, under the aegis of the Department of the Interior, uh, the Office of Indian Affairs, etc. And um, goodness sakes, uh, large numbers of people uh, of Native descent who are still here. Uh, the other irony thing is that, uh, ironically, is that Fifteen percent of uh, tribal people, only fifteen percent of tribal people live on reservations. About sixty percent of all Native American people now live in urban areas. Hmm. But people don't don't recognize that because uh, most obviously most tribal people today don't fit the stereotype that you see on TV or in in old movies. So uh, no longer a vanishing um, uh, American, a, a group that is uh, it's the fastest growing ethnic group in the United States that isn't getting any new immigration. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and something that you mentioned in the state article uh, during your interview, uh, re reflecting on, on, uh, on history and 
and maybe some less commonly known facts from history, one thing that really struck me was was the magnitude of, of some of the the uh, cities. Uh, you mentioned Cahokia. Can you talk a little bit about um, the, that uh, Native American settlement and, yes. and just the magnitude? I'd be glad to talk about that. In fact, uh, that has been I've been teaching that in American just general American history classes for thirty five years, and I've just gone up to uh, to to Nebraska, and we've talked about that at some length. In eleven hundred, approximately uh, during the Dark Ages in Europe. There was a Native American community, a city, for lack of a better term, opposite St. Louis, uh, on in on the Illinois side of the Mississippi, and it was called Cahokia, and it had a population of about thirty to thirty-five thousand. When you look at the the city and its sort of outlying areas, which was larger than London, it was larger than any city in Germany at the time. In other words, these were these were this was a, a, a city by any standard. And I think the thing that's important to point out about this is we many of us have the mistaken thought or the mistaken idea that when the Europeans arrived in in the New World, when they arrived in into North and, and South or Central America, but North America specifically. Uh, there, there were very few people living here, which wasn't the case, and that the people who were living here were basically uh, running around the forest shooting bows and arrows at rabbits or something, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a misnomer as well. And there, what had occurred here in the New World is that the same thing that had occurred in the Old World. There had been the rise and the fall of some sophisticated cultures. Uh, it just so happened that when, in what is now the United States, when the Europeans arrived, it was more or less a North American Dark Age. They arrived at a time when these cult some of these cultures were in decline. But my goodness, uh, city uh, Cahokia, for example, had a series of mounds that had a wall. It had a wall around the entire city. It had a trade network that stretched from the Great Lakes down to the Gulf of Mexico and from uh, the Rockies on the west into the Appalachians on the east. They had artisans uh, who created really beautiful objects of art that were traded. Uh, there were open-air markets. It, was, uh, it had an organized religious situation. So civilization, per se, Kind of uh, waxes and wanes across the across the world. The, the North America was certainly part of a worldwide pattern, rather than some backwater that it's sometimes portrayed. And I I think that's very important. I, I think this question I sometimes I use when I ask people is, what do you suppose uh, E.T. if he if he had come to come to the world and had landed in Europe at the at the height of the Roman Empire in Italy? He would have had a much different impression than if he would have landed in Germany at that time, where there you you had a very uh, less sophisticated society. So the point is, the, the the new world here was certainly in the in the in the mainstream. And my goodness, um, uh, we're not even talking about Mexico at the time the Spaniards entered Mexico, uh, Mexico City and its uh, surrounding area had about a third of a million people. Um, Madrid had maybe 30,000. Mm -hmm. So you're, we're talking ab uh, about things that we, we've completely sort of ignored. And I think that that's a thing that needs to be included because American history does not start in 1492. 
It mm. starts many centuries prior to that. And we've just chosen to uh, ignore it. Hopefully we're going to make some changes about that. Jumping back to... Obviously, you, obviously you, you've struck a, a, a uh, <laughs> something I'm quite interested in there, but pardon me, I'll let you go ahead. No, absolutely. Uh, ju- jumping back to, to present day, uh, in addition to being a, a historian and, and preserving history, you're also working to, to help secure a better future for Native Americans. Uh, you've been working recently as a consultant for tribal people and land and water disputes. Uh, just can you tell me what that work entails and, and what are some of the cases that you've been involved with? Well, what it entails is that the many of the reservation communities which were established in the 19th century uh, were areas set aside, quite frankly, by the federal government on um, in areas and they were places where tribal people would live uh, until they were quote ready to join the mainstream unquote, or because uh, or they but they were areas which which uh, mainstream Americans uh, felt that they probably didn't want and we can and tribal reservations are very very dear to the hearts of tribal people, but in other words the Navajo reservation is is you know it's beautiful when you drive across it etc. But the reason the Navajo has Navajos were given such a large area and large reservation up there was that most uh, non-Indians felt that, well, it wasn't going to be good for much else, and that's a good place to put them. What we're finding here in the 21st century and in in the late 20th century as well is that many of these reservations have valuable resources. And so there has been an upswing on the part of outside, outside forces to now Let's open up those reservations. Let's get at those resources. And many tribal governments have said, no, that's our land, and we intend to keep it. And we gave up a big area in, let's say, Wisconsin, uh, so that and and have this small area. But we're not about to get give up our reservation unless you want to give us the rest of Wisconsin back. And so I have been involved in uh, supporting tribal governments. Uh, in legal cases, uh, which are have been very, it's very, very interesting for me, uh, because you go back and you look at the machinations involved in treaty making, which are kind of interesting under the present circumstances in the government. You now understand that we we have obviously some issues in our government now. Uh, it's pretty obvious we had some back then, mm-hmm. uh, but the point is. Um, We've been pretty been pretty successful so far in defending the reservation land. The argument has often been, well, the tribes aren't using that the way they we think they should, so let's just basically declare that part of the reservation non-reservation. And we've been able to make some very strong and, and win that no that you can't do that. I mean you, you really can't do that. that that's illegal. Mm-hmm. And sure, uh, you know, um the, the Omaha's, for example, will give you a back part of their reservation if you want to give them back about the eastern half of Nebraska. Uh, there's a there's an interesting case in point, uh, which is under uh, some, it has been in the courts off and on, and it kind of comes and goes on a, a big piece of land in eastern Illinois, incidentally. It's the Wabash Watershed mm-hmm. in the eastern part of Illinois. It contains the entire campus at the University of Illinois. The city of Danville sits on it, et cetera. And it was once given to by the uh, federal government to the Miamis, 
because the federal government assumed that they would um, uh, they would buy it back, and the Miamis had lived there. So the government said, okay, if you sell us your land in Indiana, uh, we'll say that you do own that land in, in Illinois. And the Miami said, well, okay, so they did. So they gave up their claim. And then they began to buy bits and pieces of land in Indiana, and then they forgot about it. Mm. So today, the tribes, the Miami tribe still has a great claim to the little piece of, hell. Oh, it's a section of land, it's a significant amount of land in Illinois. And I don't think they're going to try and take anybody's farm away. That's not the issue. But uh, but they do have a claim there. And um, uh, I've worked for the Saginaw Chippewas in Michigan. I've worked for the Omaha, uh, the Oneidas in Wisconsin, for the Omahas in Nebraska, uh, for several tribes in Oklahoma, uh, and it goes and it goes on and on. And it's always quite interesting to me to do it because you you see how. Uh, political pressure and hook and crook kind of causes um, treaties to be passed or lands to be established. And then the government are, I'm not so sure it's the government, quite frankly, it's it's local forces who are trying to get it at assets on tribal land are trying to get at it. And um, uh, so far, I think we've been We've been pretty successful in defending them. I'm, uh, it, it's, but it's an uphill battle. I mean, it's the, the big fight that's coming. I'll be very honest with you. The big fight that's coming unquestionably is the fight for water in the West. Mm. Uh, by the time the uh, the Colorado River uh, reaches the Gulf of Colorado, it has almost no water in it, and um, it um, uh, is used to um, support uh, uh, Phoenix and agriculture in California and other places. But the water comes off the reservation. The Navajo reservation, some Ute lands, et cetera. Uh, they have the right to take more water than they've ever taken. They're really not probably going to drain the river. They're not the real problem. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting it's an interesting issue there. And uh, I'm sure that we'll see that. I'm sitting here in Dallas, and we're running out of water as well. And we're looking greedily now, uh, not me, but a lot of people, <laughs> at uh, water rights in Oklahoma because a lot of the Red River uh, drains parts of Oklahoma. Oklahoma has phenomenal water resources. Most people don't realize it. It has almost as much shoreline as Minnesota, which is, you wow. think of Oklahoma, you think of Dust Bowl, but there are great big reservoirs across eastern Oklahoma. So those are the kind of things that we are facing along with um, oh, other issues. And uh, we, um, we, it's, uh, it's kind of like weeds. You just keep chopping away at them and they keep coming bad. <laughs> you keep chopping away at it. But uh, anyway, um, it's, it it certainly keeps me busy. Well, let's talk about some of those other issues. And in and, and your view as a historian and as an advocate, uh, what progress, uh, if any, has been made to create that better future for Native Americans that you're hoping to help foster? And what work remains to be done? Well, I think uh, the progress has, certainly has been made. Um, we education on the Indian on in the Indian communities has has certainly Im, improved, and I remember when I started when I graduated from University of Oklahoma with a PhD and started teaching college uh, universities. I knew almost every other person of Native American descent in higher education, except for the people that were in the education departments who were working as the as the um, coordinator of uh, let's say, uh, Lakota studies in South Dakota. Mm. Uh, 
now we have we have trained a, a cadre of um, of young educated uh, people who are then uh, going out and they are in, and improving things on the reservations. The other major big interesting thing when I when I went to Wyoming, I um, uh, taught at the University of Wyoming and I did a lot of town and gown talks around the state. And people would ask me the same question that you're asking me. They said, they would say, well, well, what, what, what should, what should we expect? What do you think tribal people need? And I said, you know what we, we really need, we really need about a thousand good young Native American attorneys. Mm. Well, we don't have a thousand, but we've got a lot of good ones. And there's something called the Native American Rights Fund, who steps in to sort of champion tribal causes, and that's good. Another interesting thing, which is uh, kind of the chickens coming home to roost as well, is, as you will know, tribal lands are not subject to certain kinds of state and local taxes. And that means that you can put certain kinds of economic enterprises on those lands that perhaps are not available in surrounding regions. Um, One of those, for example, is um, gaming. Uh, and uh, gaming is like uh, any other kind of real estate. It depends upon location, location, location. But some of the some of the casinos have done well. Some have not. Depends if you're in you know if you're in rural North Carolina, pardon me, North Dakota. There's just not an awful lot of people there to uh, to uh, gain act, to come to your casino. Uh, where I sit here in in Texas, in Dallas. Uh, uh, the Chickasaws have a casino called Windstar, which is just across the, the the Red River in southern Oklahoma, which is the largest casino, not in the United States, but in the world. Wow. And so some of the casinos have done really very well, and the, they have then taken the funds from that and have used invested it in a wide range of economic opportunities, diversified uh, made opportunities for people within the tribal community, set up um, uh, daycare centers, uh, finance their own health services, uh, a wide range of things. The citizen band Potawatomies are a classic example. They're an Illinois tribe, incidentally, uh, up at Shawnee. They now own their own bank. They are the largest employer in Shawnee County, Oklahoma. Uh, they uh, basically um, are the, the the dominant economic force in that entire county. So the, these kinds of these are are opportunities. This isn't true of all communities. Some communities still remain rural, isolated, and are have not shared in this. But there is there's light at the end of the tunnel. And the question, of course, is how much of this outside uh, influence can you do you integrate into your community uh, and how much do you reject because you want to keep what makes you traditionally or as you understand it, uh, part of the tribal community. And that's an issue that people have to uh, deal with. I think probably the uh, the biggest question in the coming this coming century is how one defines Native American identity. In other words, uh, who really is Indian? As some of these 
some of these things ventures have profited. Boy, many of the tribes have had people trying to jump. It's like they laugh and say they're trying to jump on the buckskin bandwagon. Everybody thinks that if you can get on a tribal role, you're going to get rich. And uh, the tribal roles have said, nah, every, not everybody has all kinds of uh, any proof that, that you are of native origin. And it's an interesting kind of a of a of a situation that 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 has caused some difficulties but there are things have there have been some some good changes uh other things still need to be done some of the some of the the very rural areas in the um in the west particularly still need uh, more economic development uh, and the question is how much development on a in the community do you want uh, and I think the real issue there is that the tribal communities on those reservations want to control that reservation, that development themselves. They, I don't think they, they want an awful lot of other people coming in and say, well, you do this, you do that, you do that. Uh, as Vine Deloria, who was a Lakota spokesman and leading in the intellectuals, used to talk about the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And he said, you know what the BIA means? It means boss Indians around. And he says, we don't need any, we don't need any more of that. But um, uh, it's an, it's an interesting, I've had an interesting life doing this and I hope to continue doing it for a little while longer. And uh, I'm sitting here today, uh, I uh, just had a, a, another book published. I'm going to uh, give my commercial here. It's a book called Voices in the Drum, and it's written for a general audience. And it uh, talks about um, the, the response of tribal people, um, what it was like to be a, a, a woman on the Trail of Tears as the Cherokees were removed, what it was like to be enrolled in a boarding school uh, where you're taken away from your parents, what it was like to be a tribal a tribal person in uh, in California, uh, when the gold rush comes in and your the area is flooded with miners, what it was like to be on the Great Plains when horses are introduced and you and my goodness your life changes wonderfully. So it is it, it's a series of things, uh, book that anyway um, people might uh, be interested in reading it and uh, I'm uh, uh, have another book beyond that it's in press but that's another one that's another whole story. But anyway uh, I've enjoyed doing that and I've enjoyed working with uh, uh, the History Channel and PBS and other people of that sort uh, to produce things that uh, make the the experiences of tribal people more accessible uh, to non-Indian, to a non-Indian audience. Well, before I let you go, I wanted to touch just a little bit more on Voices in the Drum. Before this publication, and congratulations on it, by the way, uh, you, you produced 10 scholarly books, but this was your uh, first foray into historical fiction. What made you decide to write a historical fiction, and what do you hope that readers take away from this book? Well, it's interesting. The reason that this this book emerged from a series of lectures I've given across the country, actually in Europe, sort of at some town and gown lectures. And I was I was asked to give a lecture, oh gosh, 20 years ago or longer now, maybe, in in Sun Valley, Idaho, on what happens, what was what happened to tribal people in the 1950s. In the 1950s, the government tried to do away with reservations and move tribal people into the cities, and it was called relocation. And it didn't work very well because most people at that time had not lived in the cities, and they were just kind of cut loose. And, and what happens? In other words, you take a person from, geez, it's almost like the well, and I won't use that example, but you, you, you're you're cutting uh, people who have no experience riding an L, finding a street, 
And uh, I had a paper that I, I started to, to uh, deliver in Sun Valley at this conference. And I wrote it, and I thought, this is just a bunch of statistics. Who went where, what, how boring. And I threw it away. I thought, what I really want to do is to show what it would have been like for a, a man or a family off of a, a, a Lakota, a Sioux reservation in South Dakota, to be just turned loose in Denver when you'd never ridden a bus, when you'd never ever had to you know, do these things. And so I wrote a paper called uh, about the Summerhawk family, which were a fictitious family, uh, Summerhawks in, in concrete canyons, and I gave it. And the response was, it has it had an emotional impact. In other words, my gosh, yeah, I understand now. And afterwards, I had a lot of tribal people in the in the audience, and they came up and said, "Oh, this is really good. This we really really like that." And so I've used that format before. Uh, uh, a woman thinking back on the Great Plains, how the introduction of horses on the plains changed her life. How how it made we always think of cha- changing the life of men but really changes the lives of women more because before that they had to carry everything. Mm. And there's a whole series. And I, um, golly, I've, I've done nine essays like that. And um, I've used them uh, different places, different audiences. A couple of them were new written for the book. I've used them in my classes. Students really like them. And so I thought, well, this is, this, this makes it personal. In, a, in history, sometimes it's seen as a, a boring uh, stream of, of facts and figures and whole hum. But this, once again, lets people identify with something. What is it like if you're a woman on the Trail of Tears, a Cherokee woman en route from Georgia to Oklahoma, and it's so bad and it's so cold and the food is so bad that you lose your daughter and you have to bury her along the side of the trail and go on Mm. what would it have been like and so we i attempted to show why that why that journey cherokee people call it the trail of tears for damn good reasons Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's why people are people regardless of their their race or ethnicity and i think good people of good heart can understand what it's like, what it's like to, the, for the triumphs, what it's like for a young Native American girl to get into college, what it's like for uh, a man, once again, to achieve some success. And I, I, this is what those, those vignettes do. And I, I hope that um, people enjoy them. I, and uh, we'll, find, <laughs> we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> the book is uh, Voices in the Drum, Narratives from the Native American Past. Um, right. And so we uh, encourage our listeners to, to take a look at that. Um, and, and I will as well. Uh, Dr. Edmonds, I won't take up any more of your time, but so do appreciate you taking some time to share your, your expertise and uh, wish you the best uh, as you continue. Uh, you're, you're technically retired, but it sure doesn't sound like retirement to me. Uh, but uh, I'm well. glad that you're doing something you're passionate about and such a very important cause. Uh, well, thank, thank you, you for asking me to, uh, to participate. And uh, I will say this in terms of, of, of teaching and learning 
how to prepare lessons, etc. I probably learned more in five or six years at Bloomington High School on how to do that than I ever did in any college or university I ever taught in. That if you can, if uh, that was a very good experience for me. So I have fond memories of of Bloomington and uh, ISU and uh, Central Illinois. Dr. Edmonds, thank you so much. You bet. Bye bye. <laughs> That was Native American scholar and advocate Dr. David Edmonds. You can read more about Dr. Edmonds in this fall's issue of State Magazine. Thanks for listening to Redbird Buzz, and be sure to tune in next time for more stories from beyond the quad.